What effect will the war in Ukraine have on global supply chains and how will it impact Asia's role? That's our topic today. Welcome to the eighth episode of Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thanks for listening. What role will Asia play in global supply chains after the pandemic? We really wanted to talk about this at the end of February, but shortly before the scheduled recording, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed the picture completely. Since then, the world is simply not the same. That's why today we want to broaden the picture and ask what are the most recent trends and what is the role of Asian global supply chains? I'm very happy to be joined today by Svenja Falk and Anna Ruiz Hernandez from Accenture Research. Svenja Falk is the managing director at Accenture Research, where she oversees market trend studies and is the brain behind strategic decisions. Good to have you on the show, Svenja. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and good afternoon from Berlin. Thank you, Svenja. And Anna Ruiz Hernandez brings in the economic perspective and also knows how to navigate data, given that she works as a data scientist and analyst at Accenture Research. Thanks for being with us today, Anna. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we dive into the topic, Svenja, Accenture is a huge company with more than 700,000 employees. In a few words, What is the role of Accenture Research within that company? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, indeed, um, out of the 710,000 colleagues that we have now globally, 300 of them are actually researchers and analysts. And um, what we do, we understand the future for Accenture and for our clients and do that by applying um, truly um, innovative research uh, techniques and data insights to um, get a better grasp on what is there uh, around the corner. We partner with highly recognized institutions such as the MIT, Harvard Business Review and many, many others. Um, to um, get the breast brains together globally to um, sort of get, you know, some perspectives on the crystal ball. So let's try to get a little perspective for the future. Um, as I said earlier, we, we postponed this podcast because the war in Ukraine has changed the picture and we did not want to talk about Asia's role with also looking at the recent events. A few weeks ago, Accenture published a study titled From Disruption to Reinvention, Future of Supply Chains in Europe. And that study analyzed the war in Ukraine and its consequences. Um, Svenja, in a, in a few words, where, where do you see the reinvention that could come after the disruption due to the war in Ukraine? Well, supply chains were um, in the past always optimized for cost. They were um, considered to be um, sort of the um, uh, approach to actually reduce the cost of an operation. And now um, they are op optimized for um, value, resilience and sustainability. Guess um, um, 30% of the European value added are dependent on functioning 
supply chains. So that's enormous. And um, I think in industry um, uh, and in policy circles, it has become clear that sort of getting the supply chains right is a very important prerequisite for economic prosperity and sustainability. And everybody now looks at um, um, uh, ways to make supply chains more transparent, more integrated and more sustainable to not only achieve the economic aspirations, but certainly also the um, desires associated with the UN SDGs to um, uh, reduce carbon footprint um, in the world, as well as all the social goals that are in there as well. So you would say the Ukraine war was a wake-up call in that sense? Absolutely, yes. It was a wake-up call in a wake-up call. Um, already COVID, which had uh, brought the whole economy to a standstill, showed how dependent we are um, on functioning supply chains. And uh, for that matter, from um, certain regions that either supply a lot of intermediate goods or that um, are actually um, a, a strong part of getting work done in the value chains associated with then transporting things from um, A to B. And the sort of consequences and dis discussions of that are actually associated with those two shocks, which are very obviously different in nature. And you also tried to measure in that study the impact of the war on supply chains economically. Anna, there are two different scenarios that are realistic. Could you could you explain on that? Yeah, so that's right. Uh, we tried to quantify the impact of uh, supply chain disruptions on European uh, GDP. So uh, first uh, to say that it w it's not just the war. So uh, during the pandemic, we had already faced significant uh, supply chain disruptions that had already cost uh, in 2021 uh, the European uh, GDP uh, 113 billion uh, euros. However, we did expect that uh, before, you know, the Russian and Ukraine conflict started, we did expect uh, some kind of normalization during this uh, year 2022, or in some cases uh, for very specific products in 2023 which no longer seems the case. Yeah. Um, so mm. given the current uncertainty and unpredictability of, um, of the events, uh, What we did is we modeled two scenarios uh, to compare to the previous forecast that we had uh, before this, uh, this war occurred. And depending on the length and severity of, of the war, the cost of supply chain disruptions uh, in the Eurozone uh, during 2022 and 2023 could go from uh, 2% of, uh, of GDP to, uh, to more than 7% of, uh, of GDP in case of a protracted war scenario. And is there any tendency? What is the most realistic right now? So we have what we call the, we actually modeled three scenarios. One was a short war, which is no longer the case. And we have what we call the ongoing scenario, which is uh, the current situation. Uh, but it's true that as the war evolves uh, and the uncertainty uh, continues, uh, we, uh, so we're, we're st we still need to see uh, if, if we walk towards a more severe. Anna, thanks for giving that insights into that very recent study. Actually, the reason we wanted to do the podcast three months ago was a 
background paper you, Accenture Research, wrote for UNIDO, the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. In that piece, The Future of Industrialization in a Post-Pandemic World, you looked at the big trends in global supply chains. What major changes over time did your paper identify, Svenja? So we were um, discussing three main areas. So the first one was um, sort of the economic shift of gravity towards Asia. This is obviously a trend that we have been seeing since the time the BRICS and the so-called emerging markets gained prominence already in the 2010-ish um, area and has now become sort of even more pronounced because obviously the role of many of those emerging markets, their role in the economy has changed significantly. For example, we talked in the past um, about China as being the factory in the world and India being the back office of the world. But now we obviously see um, major innovations and sort of trend initiations for the global economy overall coming uh, from these regions. And this was the first one. The second one was really looking at sort of changing patterns of value creation at the intersection of the physical and the digital world. So um, the whole new um, ways of generating value through data-driven partnerships, often between competitors, was the second um, piece that we looked at. And the third one, obviously, the sustainability trend, which also has gained um, sort of pushed by changing consumer demand and regulation, um, has gained far more prominence um, in the past. So these were the three things that we observed and One of the major changes that we, we, we saw actually since 2016, I would say, uh, very pronounced, was that um, sort of this, this trend of ongoing global integration, continued globalization, some economists have called it hyper-globalization, has somewhat stalled. Um, for various reasons that we will come to, uh, I guess, throughout the conversation today. Mm. Okay, thank you, Svenja. You, you said at the beginning, Accenture always aims to be very innovative, uh, looking at the research methods. In this background paper, um, what was the most important data that supported the paper, Anna? So I would say that there were two very powerful, let's say, data assets that we created to shed some light into the three trends that Svenja, well, into two of those three trends that Svenja has just described. So the first one was trying to inform uh, the shift of this supplier network towards Asia. And the second one was around sustainability practices, yeah, um, and how these sustainability practices are propagated along uh, the supply chains, yeah. And what I would say, so the importance uh, of our data um, is that it, so it's basically informing macroeconomic trends uh, at a micro level and more specifically at a company level. So it's enriching and complementing like aggregated uh, macro data by adding another layer of information uh, around this international supply chain networks. And just to say that I think one of the 
important features um, of our data. It's also that it's high-frequency data, uh, so mm -hmm. it could help inform uh, policies almost in real time. Yeah, so all the data assets that uh, that we leveraged are um, are uh, uh, compiled by scanning and systematizing publicly available information through data science techni techniques, and so they provide timely information that can be uh, used for no casting. It can also be used uh, so in uncertain context uh, uh, to have a better understanding of, of the current situation. And what I think it's also very interesting uh, for developing countries, I think it has enormous potential uh, where there can be uh, a lack of uh, or incomplete uh, data yeah, and uh, mm. or delayed data, let's say. But, but what advantages do companies have to, to, to be part of the generation of the information? I would say that transparency is one of the key topics, uh, especially when we analyze supply chains. So generally, visibility after direct suppliers, after tier one suppliers, it's uh, it's very... So generally, companies do not have visibility uh, further away than, than their direct suppliers. So probably just increasing visibility and being able... That will help manage uh, supply chains. So... There, there, there's value for, for the companies. Yeah. In that background paper, you wrote that with China's inclusion in the World Trade Organization, you already mentioned that, uh, um, Svenja, in 2001, the global centers of economic gravity shifted towards Asia. You said no more the workbench, no more the fabric, India, as you mentioned. This whole thing was also obviously driven by rapid Chinese economic growth. So when we look again at the situation you analyzed, how much of Asia's dynamism comes from inside, for instance, growing production networks in Asia, and how much is coming from the outside, meaning companies from other regions outsourcing to Asia? like Germany, for instance? First of all, I would say that uh, both of them have been very dynamic. So if we have a look at the number of relationships between Asian suppliers and their, uh, so the basically the group of uh, greatest 2,000 companies, which was our, our sample, Uh, so these relationships have multiplied by uh, more than five uh, during the, the, the last 10 years. Yeah, But uh, that said, to a higher extent, dynamism has been growing from within. Because basically, um, if, we, if we have a look at relationships and how they've grown within Asian companies, it's like six and, and a half uh, times uh, higher versus uh, five times more. Yeah, So both of them have been increasing very strongly, but uh, probably the dynamism within has been higher in the last decade. Uh, Svenja, you want to add on that? Yeah, maybe it would be interesting to take a, a little historic perspective on hmm. on sourcing trends overall. They actually started um, with the main ambition of labor arbitrage. So that was the first sort of trend where, you know, when we, we still had the factory and the, the workbench um, and um, then increasingly became... Um, sort of driven by the ambition to have a market or enter foreign markets with the products and services that the companies had to provide. So we had, um, I would say, between uh, 2004, 2005, tremendous activities of of uh, companies going in, um, in uh, external markets uh, to set up shop there. 
and then um, uh, then came sort of the the observation that those um, countries are also very important hubs for innovation rather mm. than um, only um, sort of sourcing labor sourcing or the markets for products um, and now what we are what we are seeing now is that um, this these trends are now questioned or getting revisited due to this mix of geopolitical and also economic trends that we are seeing at the moment. So um, certainly from a data standpoint, um, uh, I wouldn't even say decoupling because, you know, the markets have never been integrated from a data standpoint and the likeliness that they will do that in certain uh, parts of the world um, is, is not very high at the moment. And then you have sort of the risk of a recession, inflation that is putting in some of these markets enormous, enormous pressure on labor costs um, um, and then obviously Obviously, due to what we saw during COVID and now with the war, that uh, companies are concerned of putting all their eggs in one basket, meaning that they limit the number of countries that they source from or export to. And after sort of a, a long time where centralization of activities was the main mantra, now it's about diversification and um, which is one of the um, key prerequisites for resilience in business operations and supply chains at the same time. Mm. Svenja, let me ask you one more thing. You just mentioned something that sounded to me very interesting. You said from a data standpoint, the countries were never interconnected. That's correct. So, um, But does data this mean that globalization actually didn't happen? <laughs> Um, as you know, sort of the globalization was um, at the beginning measured by transport costs and um, sort of mm -hmm. services sourced for everywhere. Our minister Robert Habeck talking about Catena X, which is a an integrated data space where companies work together um, sort of to create data-driven transparency in their supply chains. You cannot, would not be able to do that at the moment between um, the US, uh, China and Europe because all those markets have different data regulations. So the moment mm -hmm. the data regulations ca came into existence, they were not harmonized. Um, and in uh, many countries, they are still considered um, um, under discussion in development and the, the, the likeliness that we will have a global regime that would enable um, data-driven value creation um, independent of national borders is not on the horizon at this stage. Something you are aiming for because this would improve your skills to analyze supply chains, right? Yeah, you know, it would also. I mean, many of the of the 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 things that uh, we already talked about, you know, like having transparency in the supply chains, not only obviously from a um, sustainability standpoint, but also from um, to from um, a social um, standpoint, would it's actually desirable. Yeah, so there are um, uh, so many wonderful things that you could do with data um, if you share it. Um, and therefore, I think it would be a good thing. Going back to Asia and uh, your background paper, um, are there Asian countries where you would say these are the new global suppliers? And are there other countries where you would say these are more part of, a, let's say, regional China-centric network, Anna? 
Well, yes. So our data shows that there are countries like, uh, for instance, South Korea, where they are predominantly led by uh, Asian uh, networks. And you will see others like, for instance, Singapore or the Philippines uh, that are more kind of global suppliers. That said, I think two important trends that we did see is that all Asian suppliers uh, have increased their share of links yeah, to Asian. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we have a look at the global 2000 just for Asia. And also, I think that uh, because we talk about a lot about the role of, of China, but Japan has also been a great uh, din- uh, activator in, in the region. It's true that during the last decade, it has lost, uh, let's say, participation versus China, but uh, it has been also um, a great activator for, for the region. And if we look at specific sectors in their supply mm-hmm. chains, are there sectors that are heavily driven from within Asia and others that rely more on non-Asian countries, uh, like from outsourcing? So basically, uh, when we had a look at the at the countries, the probably great part of what you um, uh, of why they are more global or Asian driven is exactly because of their economic structure. Yeah, because of the sectors that are uh, predominant uh, in the country. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. um, what we see is for uh, as you were saying, so uh, countries like Korea, where maybe it's electronic equipment or machinery, that are sectors that were Asian suppliers have increased their share in terms of uh, supplies to to the greatest uh, 2,000 companies and other sectors, let's say, where it's more like services, where you would see sectors like health, for instance, where uh, where it's more locally driven and where the pattern of, of supplying from Asia uh, has been uh, quite minor. And, yeah. and what about the for Germany so important automotive industry so when we had a look at the uh, at the sectors uh, actually the automotive industry is the one that has uh, that had registered the biggest increase so over the last decade around 20% of the uh, suppliers uh, to uh, uh, to greatest 2000 uh, auto companies or auto OEMs were based in in Asia whilst uh, nowadays it's uh, six, around 60% yeah so it's it's been a really big boost um, mm. compared to the boost uh, so to the average boost that raises from like uh, 10 uh, 13% to uh, to around 40%. So yeah, we really see that pattern and I think what is uh, probably what is an interesting point is that we've seen this shift towards Asian suppliers constantly increasing during the last decade and we do see in the first quarter of 2022 that for the first time uh, it's been stable and even uh, the share of uh, of North America has been very mildly increasing so mm, we, mm. we see a slowdown there that's that's a point i just wanted to talk about i mean during the pandemic reshoring and nearshoring have become at least popular buzzwords in europe meaning that companies do not outsource their production that much anymore but they rather return production to their own countries or neighborhood countries For instance, a German automotive company could decide to move part of the supply chains to Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, or even back to Germany. How does this discussion square with the results of your paper? You you just touched it, Anna. But Svenja, do you have a do you have a clue on that? 
at the moment, there's actually, um, while there's a lot of discussion about this in the media and in Davos, obviously, deglobalization was the word mm -hmm. of the day every day. Um, there is, at the moment, there's actually not much evidence in the data for that. Um, as I said earlier, um, sort of, uh, it's considered for cost um, and um, resilience reasons increasingly. Um, however, um, we do not see uh, major sort of returns of sort of companies uh, to their home countries. I think that this is in most cases far more complicated than, than one thinks. Um, so at, I think that there are three scenarios that could unfold um, in the near future. Um, the first one is that we might see um, a, a continued, albeit a much slower globalization with different sort of uh, multinational companies providing services um, and products in China, for China, in Europe, for Europe, in the US, for the US. So that might be uh, one of the options. Um, the other one is that markets decouple in um, mm -hmm. areas that are considered to be of strategic importance. You know, things like semiconductors, you know, there have been a lot of investments from countries to um, sure, ensure digital sovereignty in this area, also other technologies, 5G, 6G, um, other things to make sure that uh, sort of sovereignty is safeguarded, but trade continues in other areas. And the third scenario is a much broader um, and more severe decoupling um, also um, of uh, low, lower value added um, activities um, across markets. But as I said, um, at the moment, um, the, there is a huge gap between sort of the, the, the noise of the conversation and the activity of the on the ground. Nevertheless, um, you know, obviously companies and policymakers are for the right reasons concerned um, about resilience. And I'm sure that we will see developments here. Mm. Uh, this noise you just mentioned, I mean, we, we had the same noise after the pandemic and now we are hearing the same noise again. Um, let me ask you again, do you think that's just a noise that will disappear or what will be the concrete consequences? Well, you know, Anna just talked about the um, automotive industry, which is, of course, very important for Germany, but also important for Europe. Um, and, um, you know, countries like France or Italy have uh, substantial um, operations in these um, in these industries. Eighty percent of this, uh, the growth of the of the automotive industry in Europe comes from outside Europe. So um, it is, um, you know, uh, very important that countries um, in these industries um, are not closing up. Um, you know, it would be a, a major and substantial disruption um, um, of um, these industries, which play, um, especially the manufacturing industries, play a huge and important role um, from an employment standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, you know, the majority of patents um, are coming from um, sort of the uh, manufacturing uh, sectors 
um, and then um, also from an from an investment standpoint. So, um, ha um, having said that, um, I think that playing farewell to trade is probably not an option. Mm. So let's sum up a little bit. We've been talking about Asia's role going from the workbench, the, the, the fabric to a very innovative place, um, growing a lot within the last 10 years. And now we have this discussion about reshoring, nearshoring, where you said this is not really taking place. But I want to circle back to the beginning uh, and the, of the discussion and the, the fallout from, from, from Russia's war in Ukraine. There are Asian countries and China as well that have not condemned the war on Russia. Uh, and this leaves obviously many investors and decision makers also careful and attentive about China's next steps. Um, going back to China's role, Svenja, what do you think, what effects might the war have on, on, on China and also Asia and global supply chains? So, yeah, you're right. Um, a number of countries, we talked about the BRIC countries earlier, and in fact, all of those uh, countries have taken a neutral stance. So they have, um, you're right, they have not condemned the invasion, but they have also not, they have also sent very mixed messages. On the one hand, you're right, they have not sort of voted with um, sort of Europe and the US and others. But at the same time, they have also withdrawn investments and um, tried to avoid to be um, sort of subject to indirect uh, to sanctions. So um, China has a lot of issues that they um, are yet that they have yet to solve. It's obviously um, a country with major demographic challenges. Um, mm. It's a country which is um, where you have huge disparities from a socio-economic standpoint within the country. You have sustainability issues. Um, and um, you have uh, sort of the whole issue um, uh, around inclusion more broadly. So I think from my perspective, I do not uh, see any sort of major changes from China's stance um, on, on the war at the moment. Um, however, it's still to be seen how the world is developing. I think we have been um, we have been surprised uh, actually twice in the last couple of years mm -hmm. really badly with things that we didn't anticipate. So um, um, uh, I think we ought to be humble and uh, uh, careful in anticipation of what will happen and what countries would do. And you touched it before, I think. Um, is there any data that shows a trend that companies are, after the war, reluctant to outsource? Um, do you see any spike in reshoring or anything related to that thesis that China has lost attractivity due to its position uh, on the war? Okay, so let's let's say there's no evidence of reshoring if we understand it as a drop in the share of uh, of suppliers uh, to the greatest companies from China. But what we do see is some early signals of deceleration, I would say, of the long-term trend, because if we zoom in uh, to just uh, consider Chinese suppliers and not Asian, as, um, as we were doing before, we do mm -hmm. see that uh, there has been a constant shift over the last decade of 
of the share and increase of, of the share of Chinese uh, suppliers, that has decelerated. So basically, uh, during the last three quarters, it has remained flat. So still no signals of, let's say, reshoring, uh, so no evidence, let's say, but uh, some deceleration, um, I would say. And um, another point that, that I think is important, it's probably the geographic diversification. So we do see that uh, companies are diversifying uh, uh, their suppliers geographically to uh, reduce or de-risk their supply chains. Thank you so much, Anna, for these insights. Um, and, and thank you both for joining this podcast. That was a very interesting conversation. And this was our eighth episode of Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains. Today, our topic was Asia's global supply chains caught between war and pandemic. And we talked to Svenja Falk and Anna Ruiz Hernanz from Accenture Research. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. We will be back in a few weeks from now with our podcast number nine. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thanks for listening. Goodbye and be safe. <laughs>